The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we take a closer look at what happens when water falls from the sky, how it moves once it's on the ground, and what happens when people and water get in each other's way. With me is Lucy Barker, a hydrological analyst at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in the UK. She works on a range of national and international research projects and contributes to operational projects, including the National Hydrological Monitoring Programme, which provides an authoritative voice on the hydrological conditions throughout the UK, works to identify and interpret long-term hydrological change and variability, and produces a monthly hydrological summary, as well as reporting on extreme events like floods and droughts. Lucy, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, nice to talk to you today. Firstly, the term hydrological analyst is probably one not everyone has heard of. So can you give us a brief primer on what a hydrological analyst does? Yes, so hydrology is uh, primarily concerned with the study of water flowing across the landscape. So it's fallen as rain or as snow, um, and it's now running across the landscape and reaching our rivers. So we're looking, we're, we're primarily interested in what happens between the water hitting the ground and reaching the sea, essentially, or the oceans. Interesting. So it's not, it doesn't really cover the idea of what happens when water hits the sea or when the sea hits the land. It's mostly about water falling from the sky in some form and how it makes its way to its final destination, which is probably an ocean of some type. Yes. Yes. Fresh water, fresh water from the sky to the sea. (laughs) Interesting. I did not know that there was a particular, like a particular, um, discipline for that particular type of uh, water falling from the sky and how it interacts with the land. It's interesting all of the things that people can specialize in that I never even occurred to me that there'd be a specialization for that. It's cool. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about flooding because right now there has been a lot of flooding in the news and it seems like this is something, I mean, it appears to be something that at least from a perspective of uh, an average person reading the news, it seems to be happening more often. So um, maybe we can start by talking about the different types of floods that can happen. Yep. So there are several different sorts of flooding that can occur. Um, so if we start off, we can have um, fluvial or river flooding, um, which is possibly what we're going to be most uh, used to seeing or hearing about. Um, and so when, when it rains a lot or in, there's intense rainfall, it falls onto the land and flows over the land and reaches the river. But obviously the river has a certain capacity. And once that capacity is filled, um, the water will spill out of the channel and onto the floodplains and flood whatever happens to be there, whether it's a field or some houses or a town or businesses and things like that. Um, Then probably the next most common sort of flooding we might be used to seeing or hearing about would be surface water flooding, where um, if it rains very intensely over a short period of time, that that rain, when it hits the ground, will overwhelm any drainage that's in in the ground and the drains won't be able to carry that water away um which leads to ponding and flooding on the surface of roads or um kind of paved areas so that's mostly in developed areas or towns uh, uh where there's roads and things like that um there's also flash flooding which can be seen as very similar to surface water flooding um again it's caused by intense rainfall which flows very quickly over the land but 
there's no very little time for that water to um, infiltrate or sink into the ground and just flows and ponds on the surface. Um, and that can happen really, really quickly. So I think in less than about six hours is the usual definition of a flash flood. Um, we also have groundwater flooding. So this is uh, flooding coming from the opposite direction. This is water coming from the ground upwards. Um, so if we have a uh, groundwater um, level, which is increased due to a prolonged period of, of wet weather, um, that water level in the ground will rise and then um, where it reaches the surface, it will kind of um, flood out onto the surface, whether that's into your basement or whether it floods um, like underground or metro stations or, or right up onto this into your living room and into your the surface of your house. So I want to talk a little bit um, before we get into specifically flooding about how water from the sky and rain in particular interacts with the ground and what happens after it hits the ground. Um, so I'm assuming that some amount of it will soak into the ground and fall down to whatever the natural water table of the area is, and that some will also end up if there's a, a hill or a nearby river or a nearby ocean that it will also move down and drain into those existing bodies of water. Is that is that a generally right or have I missed something there? No, no, that's pretty much correct. Yeah. Um, the water will, the, the rain will land onto, fall onto the ground. Um, if it's, if it can infiltrate the ground, if the, if the, if the geology is, uh, permeable, um, then it's possible for the water to infiltrate the ground. If it's impermeable, it's just going to run straight off the surface. So that's whether that's to do with the geology or whether it's a paved surface. Um, but then if the ground is saturated, so if it's already been really wet and the ground has absorbed as much water as it can, um, it's not going to absorb any more and it's just going to run straight off the surface, as you said, across the land um, down into river channels or to the ocean. When we talk about um, the existing water table, I'm, I sort of hear that term all the time, but I don't actually know exactly what it means or how it's determined. So can you talk a little bit about what a water table is and how it changes? The water table is the, the, the level of the water which is stored within the ground, within um, what you might call an aquifer, which is um, a permeable rock um, type which will hold water. Um, and that water table level will um, increase as it gets um, recharged throughout the year during wet periods and it will go down when it's drier and water is um, either flows through the through that aquifer or is abstracted um, by by water users. So this is something that naturally fluctuates with normal weather with sort of normal seasonal patterns that kind of thing. Yes it has a very seasonal cycle throughout the year. So um, here in the UK, we have our highest kind of water table levels um, in spring after, at the end of the winter recharge season. And then throughout the rest of the year, they dec decrease over time um, before we get to the next winter and they're recharged again. That's the normal seasonal cycle. So what types of ground are, I don't know if better is the right word, but it's the word I'm going to use, better at absorbing more water versus the types of ground or land that uh, are less good at, at less permeable, I guess is the best word. 
Um, so one one rock type which is holds a lot of water is chalk. We've got a really big chalk aquifer in the south of England where I am right now, and that holds a lot of water and is really important for um, public water supply. And that has a lot of fractures. The nature of the rock means there's a lot of fractures in there, um, which allows water to, to be stored, but also to travel through that rock um, quite easily. Whereas other things like sandstone, although it does hold water and it can be important for um, as a water supply source, um, it's much harder for the water to um, travel and infiltrate through that rock type. So it's more likely to kind of flow over it with less of it going through the rock itself. Yes. And things like granite, um, which that metamorphic type rock, that's not going to infiltrate any water at all because of the the, the nature of those rock crystals aren't going to allow water to, to travel or uh, through it. So what about things like um, soil or dirt or uh, parkland or parkland areas? Um, so certain soil types, um, so I'm not an expert in soils because that's a whole separate science in itself, but um, certain soil types obviously allow water to travel through them more easily. The gardeners out there will certainly know this. Um, but th- so things like clay, clay soils, um, they're obviously wet anyway because of because of the clay in them, but it's harder for water to travel through them, which is why they're so wet. Um, it, the water doesn't drain away from that soil. It holds the water there without it letting travel further, further down into the rock below it. So I'm going to assume that a lot of the structures and surfaces that are man-made, things like concrete, things like asphalt, are probably less permeable to water going through them. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Those um, impermeable concretes, asphalts, other paved surfaces um, obviously don't allow that water to infiltrate into the ground as it naturally would. And it flows directly um, through our drainage systems, which we've laboriously um, put underneath all of our urban areas. And that water, when it enters into those drains, it's going to go directly to the river, which means that that river level is going to increase a lot Quick, more quickly than it would have done naturally if the water had just been able to infiltrate into the ground or run over the natural, really rough ground um, that would have been there naturally. So to some extent, one of the problems we have with cities is they kind of make drainage almost too efficient for the rivers that are around them because they're getting water there too fast. Yes, that is. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. (laughs) Interesting. It's not really something that you think of as being a problem efficiency. Usually we want efficiency. (laughs) But in this case, perhaps being slightly less efficient would be better. Yeah, there's a lot of work actually happening. Um, I know here in the UK where we're looking at trying to slow the flow of flood water down. So um, slow the flow of water up in headwaters. So it takes a lot longer for water to reach the cities. Um, and we're doing that by making ground and channels a lot rougher, which means that it takes longer for the water to um, reach um, further areas further downstream. So it seems like in a lot of cases, heavy rainfall is one of the biggest triggers of floods. Um, But I do remember one summer when I was working in the Rocky Mountains, we had really bad flooding um, around where I was working due primarily to snow runoff. So how frequently is this type of flooding in areas around the mountains? I'm assuming it's a big contributor. Um, I'm I'm certain it will be a really big problem um, in many places. In the UK, we don't have such a a big problem with snow melt because we don't have too much snow apart from up in the highlands in Scotland. But when that snow, if that snow melt um, happens very quickly or 
um, when it's been it's been wet uh, from rainfall as well, then um, all that extra water has to go somewhere, and it's going to cause problems if if there's nowhere for that water to go, whether that's into the into the ground or into, into the river channels. So. When we're talking about flooding, I'm interested to know how predictable or unpredictable floodwaters are, because to some extent, it seems like a certain amount of flooding is predictable or, um, or quote unquote normal for particular areas. You know, heavy rainfall happens, rivers kind of bulge or maybe overflow their banks a little bit into the surrounding floodplains. That seems very predictable to me. Um, but then there's also, there's also seems to be a type of flood that happens much faster, maybe the flash flood. Um, where it seems like how that water interacts with the landscape suddenly becomes a lot more unpredictable and uh, potentially a lot more dangerous. Yes, that's that's true. So flood, you know, we have to remember that flooding is is a natural process. Um, it's going to happen naturally um, at certain times of year or in certain locations uh, much more regularly than others. And in on a natural floodplain, the plants and animals that live there are going to be uh, adapted to that natural flooding kind of cycle. Um, one of the things uh, I want to talk about before we end was we often hear floods and rainfall discussed in terms of the 100-year flood or the 500-year flood. Um, w- this seems to me like a bit of a strange way to describe uh, something like this, because usually we might suspect it to be, um, if we're talking about the risk of something or the extre- extreme nature of something, we might say a flood of X severity is 2% likely. Um, so why say it's a 100-year flood? or a 500-year flood? Um, so you did actually mention um, how likely it is, and that's essentially what, what that 100-year flood is telling you. So um, a 100-year flood has a one, in, a one out of 100 chance of happening every year. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's just an indication of how likely it is to occur, and it is a confusing way of putting it, and there's a lot of discussion um, I know in the literature, which is um, of, around how we can best explain return periods or is there better ways that we can um, describe this probability of a flood happening. But so a 100-year a one, a flood does not mean that it's only going to happen every 100 years, um, which, which, it, which I guess is what it sounds like it might do. But as yeah, as I said, it's um, a one in one hundred chance of occurring in a given year, which is equal to a one percent chance of it happening in a given year. Um, whereas a, a, a one thousand year flood would only have a zero point one percent chance of happening in a given year. But it does mean it does mean that you could have a one hundred year flood two years in a row or three years in a row if you were really unlucky. Right, because probability doesn't work the way we want it to work, unfortunately. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, given that um, in a lot of places, as we were discussing, we don't necessarily have a lot of historical data around flooding. Um, do those numbers change frequently in some cases or for some regions? So do we kind of revise on a regular basis or maybe not a regular basis what a 100-year flood for any particular place means? Yes, you're entirely correct there. As we get more more data and more data are collected, um, those re- um, return periods of, of flooding kind of, sorry, start that again. You're entirely correct. 
there. Um, as we get more data and more data are collected, um, those return periods are going to change and what a hundred year flood is, is, is going to change over time as, as more floods occur. Um, cause it's just based on the events that have happened in, in that record. I suspect that this might be kind of uh, maybe a difficult way to try and track trends or maybe complicate the problem of trying to track trends in flooding just because the data is changing but just by nature of we don't have that much data. And so every bit we add is at this point still going to sort of change it no matter what sometimes. <laughs> um, so in a, in a way, yes, but um, if you were looking at the occurrence of floods through time, you probably wouldn't use a return period. You would use the flow value that was recorded in that event rather than its equivalent uh, return period. So the flow value isn't going to change over time as we collect more and more values. So that's that's um, a fixed measurement that um, we can then work with as we over time. Remind me what the flow value was again? So the flow of the river is how much water is so flowing past you or going past you at, at a certain point in the river. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that would be, I guess, fairly consistent because it's about how much water is passing. So it also takes into yes. account the size of the river, the depth of the river, um, how fast it's moving, that kind of thing. Yes, correct. Interesting. Okay. Well, Lucy, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting conversation. And we don't really think about something like flooding as having really a science behind it, but it, it really does when you stop to think <laughs> about it. So, and, and I can see how the data that a team like yours generates can be really useful to city planners, um, people who are trying to understand how better to maybe build up spaces or protect spaces that are built um, from from flood damage. Yes, that's really great message to end on. We really, we really like, um, we really like to carry on this message of getting people to really understand the importance of all of these observations that collect, get collected, whether it's river flows or meteorological data like rainfall. So that's a really great point to end on. Lucy, thank you so much for your time today. Really wonderful talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> If you want to learn more about Lucy Barker or the Center for Ecology and Hydrology, we have links available for clicking in the show notes for this episode on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next, we speak with Anne Jefferson, Associate Professor in the Department of Geology at Kent State, about sexy stormwater systems, how we try to prevent flooding, and how some of our engineering solutions sometimes makes flooding worse. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. With me is Anne Jefferson, an associate professor in the Department of Geology at Kent State University in Ohio. Her research focuses on watershed hydrology and hydrogeomorphology and the effects of disturbances such as climatic and land use change on hydrologic systems. And welcome to Science for the People. It's great to be here. So you wrote a blog post specifically talking about how urbanization did and did not have an impact in the severity of flooding in Houston during the recent Hurricane Harvey. 
which I think is a topic we're starting to hear more about after any major environmental force hits a major city over the last couple of years. I mean, are we thinking more about how our choices around our built up environments might be contributing to greater cost? Uh, I think we are. You know, we know broadly that things like hurricanes and floods and forest fires are all part of Earth's climate system and have been going on for millions of years. Uh, and they really don't become disasters until you put people in the way. And so, of course, the place where we put the greatest concentration of people in the smallest area is in cities. And so lots of different engineers and earth scientists and even ecologists are trying to work on issues of both how do we uh, build cities in ways that they're uh, better prepared for large events like the hurricanes we've been seeing in the U.S. and the wildfires we've been seeing in the U.S. this summer um, and for more regular day-to-day weather. So, you know, it doesn't rain 50 inches all that often in any given week, but we have a lot of days and weeks in many cities where we get an inch of rain or two inches of rain or three inches of rain. Um, so how do we prepare for those sorts of weather events? Um, and then how do we make sure that our cities are not, um, to the extent possible, not adversely affecting uh, the surrounding ecosystems? So if you've got a city on a major river or even some small streams, how do we protect the the natural ecosystems um, sort of downstream of where our city is located? So I do want to talk a bit about stormwater systems, um, because I don't think enough people actually spend any time thinking about their stormwater systems until they fail or flood. So can you talk a little bit about what stormwater systems are designed to do in a typical city? Sure. This is my favorite topic. So a majority of my research for the last five plus years has focused on stormwater. And so what's when we build cities, um, I like to say that we pave paradise and put up a parking lot, right? Because your rooftops and your parking lots are designed to shed water off them as quickly as possible. And we've covered over and removed the um, ability of water to interact with the soils and with the vegetation. And so... Um, again, before we started putting stormwater systems in, we basically put in pipes and gutters to convey the water off the urban built up area as quickly as possible. But that leads to negative consequences for downstream areas. So increased flooding, increased sediment erosion, pollution carried off of lawns and parking areas and rooftops ending up in the streams. Um, and it can adversely impact stream ecosystems, but also downstream neighborhoods. So if you've built up a high area, you might actually increase flooding in um, lower lying areas within a city. And so stormwater systems are designed to mitigate or decrease those effects. Um, so what they're designed to do is either slow down the release of stormwater. So for example, stormwater ponds and wetlands are mostly designed to kind of catch the water as it comes in, hang on to it for about 24 hours and slowly drain out. Um, other types of stormwater systems like green roofs and rain gardens on uh, permeable pavements are designed to infiltrate water, so send water down into the soil um, underneath that stormwater control, the same way water would have normally, naturally infiltrated into the soil, and to provide opportunities for what we call stormwater harvest. So stormwater harvest can be 
reuse by humans. So like a rain barrel that you then use to irrigate your garden or flush your toilets, or it can be harvest through plants taking up the water and evapotranspiring it. So how do we decide how much stormwater our drainage systems will accommodate before we start to run into problems? That's a really great question because I think there are a lot of misperceptions about what stormwater controls are typically designed to do. So stormwater controls aren't designed for extreme events. They are typically designed to capture and control the sort of event that happens several times a year in any given area. So for example, I live in Ohio and our stormwater controls are designed to capture the runoff from the first three quarters inch of rain. Um, and that is designed to completely capture about 85% of the events that happen in Ohio in any given year. Um, I have collaborators that work in Maryland there and North Carolina. Their stormwater controls are designed for the first inch because it rains a little harder along the east coast a little bit farther south. In Texas, uh, where Hurricane Harvey hit, the stormwater controls are designed to capture and treat an inch and a half of rainfall. So if you get a rainstorm that is bigger than what your stormwater control measures are designed to treat, then they're going to have limited capacity to provide additional benefit. Um, so if you're getting 5 inches or 10 inches or 50 inches of rainfall, the stormwater control measures in your city aren't designed to deal with that. And so you're still going to get problems with flooding. So when our stormwater systems, like in Houston, obviously it's not prepared for how much water did Houston get? Something like 50 inches of rain? Yeah, so at least one location um, received 51.88 inches of rain over the course of the storm, and, and many other areas were in the 40-plus inches of rain region. So obviously the stormwater system isn't designed to accept anywhere near that kind of capacity. So is there infrastructure or things in place in a city like Houston that's designed to try and mitigate some of that more extreme uh, rain and flooding potential? Yeah, so there's several other uh, ways that you can deal with stormwater um, for these larger events. So some cities will have floodways, uh, so there's sort of low areas where the water is designed to go in to, usually it's a stream or a river channel, but that they've sort of built up and um, water can sort of be safely passed downstream and out of the city as after it's passed into the floodway. Um, other cities, and Houston is a great example of this, have built flood control reservoirs, usually upstream of the city or upstream of the city at the time the reservoirs were built. So, for example, Houston had two flood control reservoirs, Attics and Barker, that were built in the 1930s, um, and they were designed to be dry most of the time. Um, and when it was just a little bit of stream flow passing through, then that would just pass right through. Uh, but when there was a lot of rain coming down, uh, the gates could be lowered on these reservoirs and then they would fill up um, and prevent catastrophic flooding from reaching downtown Houston. Well, since the 1930s, uh, Houston's gotten a lot bigger. And so now there are a lot of neighborhoods up right around the reservoirs and immediately downstream of these flood control reservoirs. And precipitation has gotten more intense. 
And so one of the one of the issues of depending on flood control reservoirs for protecting your city is that just like stormwater control measures, they have a limited capacity. Now that limited capacity is much bigger. Um, but in the case of um, the flood control reservoirs around Houston, they were built for something like 15 inches of rainfall. Um, and so they did their job for the first 15 inches of rainfall. They filled right up and they prevented flooding in the downstream communities. The problem was that it kept raining. And so... Um, once your flood control reservoir is full and it's at the top of the dam, there's no more capacity to buffer any additional rainfall or inflow coming into them. And at that point, engineers have to look at protecting the structural integrity of the dam. Um, so the dam operators may be forced to actually release some water from the flood control reservoir and potentially doing it while flooding is still going on downstream. And in the case of Hurricane Harvey, they had to do it unfortunately, at the peak of flooding downstream. Um, and so that actually made flooding worse in some neighborhoods downstream of the reservoir um, and upstream of the reservoir, too, because of the particular geometry of, of these reservoirs. Um, but the dam operators were making those decisions because the worst case scenario is that your flood control reservoir fails, that it breaches, that the dam breaks, and then you have a 50-foot wall of water racing down towards the city that your flood control reservoir was designed to protect. Um, so, yes, there are other ways of um, of trying to deal with urban runoff and pre prevent flooding in urban areas, but just like with storm stormwater control measures, they are designed based on a certain hydrology, a certain size of event. And if you get something bigger than that, then they can't continue to help and in some ways can potentially make things worse. So why don't we make the dams higher? Why don't we make these spaces able to accommodate more water or, or hold up and slow down more water? Right. So that's a great question because that seems like the obvious thing. Why don't we make our rain gardens able to infiltrate five inches of water? And why don't we make our flood control reservoirs able to hold 25 inches of water? Um, space and cost. And those two things go hand in hand. So uh, if we build for bigger capacities, able to treat bigger storms, we're going to take up more land area. And that land area is the area we're trying to urbanize, right? That we're trying to build our shopping centers on, or we're trying to put a new housing development on. And if you're now telling people that say 25% of your land that you've bought for housing development has to be stormwater ponds or wetlands, then that's a big economic cost to those developers. The same thing with the flood control reservoirs. Um, particularly uh, in in relatively flat areas in terms of flood control reservoirs for every additional height, um, say for every additional foot of dam height that you'd want to build onto a reservoir in a mountainous area, you might not be increasing the surface area of the reservoir that much. But for every additional foot of dam height that you are trying to build, say, in Houston, you're going to be increasing the surface area of the reservoir potentially by hundreds of acres. Um, and again, that's land that could be put to other uses. Uh, so there's a cost there. So we can't just easily say, okay, now the worst storm on record in Houston has dumped something like four feet of rainfall. We're going to redo all of our stormwater control measures and all of our flood control reservoirs to deal with that sort of storm because 
it would be enormously expensive um, in terms of both land and dollars. I also wanted to talk a little bit about levies. So can you talk about how they're designed to work? Sure. So levies are basically walls built to constrain where a river can flood. So um, normally when the water level rises in the river and it gets too high for the channel, it flows out onto a floodplain. It can spread way out um, and that water on that floodplain is relatively shallow and it's relatively slow moving. Um, in fact, that f- process of bringing flood water out onto floodplains is why floodplains have such wonderful fertile soils and where floodplains were the birthplaces of agriculture in many civilizations because of the process of bringing um, sediment and nutrient-rich floodwaters out onto floodplains. So floodplains are are great places for agriculture um, and, of course, places that people might eye for urban development. Uh, and so levees go up when we want to do something with a floodplain other than let it flood. And so what levees do is that they constrain the water so into a more narrow portion of the floodplain or even just into the channel itself. So then after you've built levees, when it rains, the water has no ability to spread out and slow down. Instead, it gets higher within the space that it's given, and it's flowing faster. Um, And so just like with stormwater controls and with flood control reservoirs, levees are built for a particular size of flood that is expected to have a particular frequency or probability of happening in any given year. Um, Typically, they're designed for something like a flood that has a 1% chance of happening in any given year, what we often call the 100-year flood in a very confusing uh, mishmash of probability and recurrence intervals. Um, So if you're designed for a 1% flood and you get something that's smaller than that, then the levees work as intended and the water stays within the channel and your neighborhood on the other side of the levee stays dry. If you get a flood that is bigger than what the levees are designed for, the levees can be overtopped and then you get flooding in the neighborhoods or they can fail and then you get flooding, catastrophic flooding in the neighborhoods. Um, and so they, you know, they only work to a point. The other issue with levees is that they can fail at less than their design flood if they are not properly maintained. Um, and that can be a serious issue for a number of levees all around the country. Um, and the size of the flood and the frequency of the flood uh, can change as well. So if you built, say, some of the first levees in along a river, uh, and then other developers, other communities came along and they built levees and they narrowed the floodplain upstream. Now, when a flood comes through that channel, it can't spread out upstream of your levee. And so the flood water will be higher at the levee that you're responsible for. And so even though your levee was designed to protect against that size flood, it no longer protects against that size flood and can be overtopped or can fail. Um, similarly, uh, increasing urban development in the watershed can increase the frequency that a flood of a given size occurs. And so even though you think you've designed for a 1% flood, if lots of urbanization has happened upstream, 
uh, a 1% flood now is really much bigger than you thought it was going to be. And I'm assuming that we're also considering the potential effects of climate change and whether or not an area might get more rainfall than we originally built some of these levees or uh, flood reservoirs for. Right. And so climate change is actually, I mean, I would say it's the elephant in the room with all the things that are happening uh, in terms of severe weather this summer um, and, you know, honestly, this decade. Um, so one of the things we know of about warmer atmospheres is that they can hold more water. So more evaporation occurs, more water gets brought up into the atmosphere as water vapor. And so when it cools down and starts to rain, whether that's in a hurricane or a thunderstorm or any other sort of storm, we can get more rainfall and more intense rainfall. And so we see in many parts of the world um, that the size of intense and heavy precipitation events is increasing. Um, and so... Unfortunately, the way we do our flood statistics, we do them based on historical observations. Um, and so that doesn't really work if the patterns of rainfall that you got over the past century aren't the patterns of rainfall that you're likely to get over the next century. It also doesn't work really well for these extreme events like we're getting with the hurricanes um, because oftentimes we are you know, basing our estimates of the probability of something occurring on a few decades, maybe a hundred years worth of data. And so when you get something coming in that's much bigger and you hear um, the media and politicians say, well, that was a 500 year storm or a thousand year storm. Or I heard somebody recently say that Harvey was something like a 500,000 year storm. We do not have the records to constrain those extreme probabilities. So we really can't say um, with any level of certainty that things are a thousand year um, probability or whether that's really maybe something that's much more frequent than, but we just haven't happened to have seen it in the history that we have recorded. It's really hard when we're talking about the probability of rare events because by their nature, they are rare. Right. Exactly. So in your post, you also talked about the idea of some of the damaged buildings being outside the 100 year floodplain. Can you talk a little bit about these designated floodplain, uh, these designated floodplains, um, and who designates them as such? Sure. So, again, the 100-year floodplain is based on the expected height of the flood that would occur in about 1% of years, or one out of every 100 years. Um, and the most important point to take away is just because we had a 100-year flood in 2017 does not mean we are safe until 2117, right? <laughs> it's, these are independent events. Um, so, but these 100-year floodplains are based on hydraulic modeling that FEMA does based on rainfall uh, on the watershed being routed through the channel and then how will that spread out out of the channel during these size floods. It takes into account flood control reservoirs. It takes into account levees. Um, but it is, again, based on historical data and does not consider climate change. Um, it also, these 100-year uh, floodplains are mapped based on the current levels of development in the watershed and do not consider 
future urban development. Um, communities can request that FEMA draw an additional sort of area on the map that reflects uh, what future development might do to the floodplain, um, but that's at the community's request, so not everywhere has that, and the communities have to do the legwork to figure out that it's not additional hydraulic mapping that FEMA does. Um, and so the regulatory 100-year floodplain is just based on current conditions, and they're based on current conditions where current is whatever year FEMA did the mapping. Um, so FEMA focuses a lot on urban areas, again, greatest concentration of people potentially in harm's way, but sometimes maps are still out of date relative to the amount of development that occurs. If you live in a 100-year floodplain and you have a mortgage, you are required to buy flood insurance from the National Flood Insurance Program. If you live outside of the 100-year floodplain, um, you're generally not required to buy flood insurance. So most of those people whose houses are damaged outside of the 100-year floodplain are not likely to have any recourse to flood insurance payments to help them rebuild and recover from the damages. Um, so in the example of Harvey, why are we seeing so much damage outside of the 100-year floodplain? Well, for one thing, I think most of us would say this was a bigger than 100-year event. It was a bigger than 1% probability event to get this much rainfall in a single storm. Um, so, of course, uh, the flooding would spread out farther than that 100-year floodplain. And then the second answer is that um, potentially the effects of levees along the channel of development within the historical floodplains and historical wetlands um, within the watershed and then overall urbanization exacerbated uh, flooding during this event. I'm interested in that we designate these areas as floodplains, but quite often we still see uh, building and development there. So uh, it just strikes me as weird that we would decide to build and live in places that have a very high likelihood of flooding in our lifetime. <laughs> right. So I, that's a really interesting observation. So a couple of things to sort of think about is that um, if you want to build in a 100-year floodplain, you could put up a levy if local regulations allow that and if you can show that your levy isn't, isn't supposed to exacerbate flooding for other communities. Um, and then once you're behind a levy that gets certified as built to withstand a 100-year flood, then suddenly that portion of the floodplain is no longer considered in the floodplain. Um, the second is that you can build in a floodplain if you fill above the elevation of the flood that would be expected at that probability. So you could put houses on sort of mounds of fill or you could put houses on um, sort of concrete block bases or stilts and then you can develop in the floodplain. Um, so there are ways around the sort of designation of the 100-year floodplain um, that allow development to continue. The other thing, I think in many urban areas, you know, we didn't start out developing on the floodplains. People historically knew those are the areas that flood. If we're going to put a house, we're going to put it up in the high area. Um, and so then when you get infill development, particularly if you have um, developers looking for cheap land, the places that are going to be left are going to be the floodplains and the wetlands. Um, so those historically low and flood prone areas are going to be 
later developed, maybe developed with less expensive housing um, than the high areas where you're going to put more expensive housing and, and those probably would have been developed earlier as well. So how do we avoid this? Is there a way that we can engineer ourselves out of these more extreme flooding events? That's a great question. Um, you know, for these really huge events that we've been seeing, um, I don't know that we're going to realistically be able to remold Houston or other cities in a way that that same sort of extreme event could come and we wouldn't see any damage. But we can do better in terms of smaller events and taking people out of the most risky and flood-prone areas. Um, so there are some hard fixes and there are some easy fixes. One that should be a relatively easy fix but isn't um, is fixing the way flood insurance payouts happen. So again, if you live in the 100-year floodplain, you're required to buy insurance. And then if your house is damaged or destroyed in a flood, you get money to replace the house in the same location frequently. There's nothing to stop you from rebuilding in that same location. So about 1% of properties insured by the U.S. National Flood Insurance Program receive over 30% of the payouts from the program. So there are homeowners that have been wiped out time and time again. They get the money, they rebuild the next big flood that comes along, their house is damaged or destroyed, they take money again. So if we could fix our flood insurance program so that repeat payouts were disincentivized um, and that there was more money available to move some of those most flood-prone homeowners into safer areas, um, that would be a great thing that we could do just fix policy-wise. Of course, socially, the reason those homeowners keep coming back is that's their home, that's their community, that's their neighborhood. That's where they have deep sort of familial or cultural or just neighborhood ties. And so we can't just pretend that it's just a technocratic fix. I mean, we, we have to recognize that there are social costs with that. Um, other things we can do are to really, really disincentivize further levee building and floodplain building in floodplains. Um, and it would be great if we actually could start to consider likely build out and likely climate change impacts on those flood probabilities and where the floodplains are going to be when development occurs and not just where they were 20 years ago. Um, so I think trying to keep people from further encroaching on the floodplains is, is a really key thing that we could do. Um, the other thing is, an, or another thing, is to really work at um, preventing further infilling of wetlands and locating people and economically important things in wetlands. So um, the Houston area, for example, has lost something like 70% of its wetlands over the last several decades. The state where I live in Ohio has lost 95% of its wetlands compared to 1850. And that's true throughout the Midwest. Well, those wetlands, similar to floodplains, those are places where water sits under wet conditions. When groundwater levels are high, when it's rained a lot, those are places that were just meant to be wet. And when you fill them in, 
and you put your house there, either you're going to get hit <laughs> uh, the next time it's really wet, or you've just shunted the problem off to other people within the watershed. So your house might be filled in enough so that it stays dry, but that water has got to go somewhere. And so somebody is on the receiving end of the water that would have naturally sat in a wetland and slowly evaporated, been used by plants or infiltrated into the ground. Um, so, so protecting the remaining wetlands is absolutely a key thing that we should be doing in cities. And again, it's even more crucial because of what the likely climate change impacts are going to be of these increasing heavy rainstorms. It definitely sounds like we, as at least uh, sort of quote unquote first world um, developed urbanized people, it sounds like we kind of have this like blank spot when it comes to water. We either take places that are wet and make them dry and then just assume the water's gone because it's not where it was. So therefore, it's just gone. It's no one's problem anymore. But really, in all these situations, it sounds like our big blind spot is recognizing that even if we've moved the water, that means it's gone somewhere. Right. Yes. Water is, you know, it's a local problem. And if it's not your, if you make it not your local problem, it's somebody else's local problem. Um, and, and also recognizing that whatever in your historical memory is an extreme event, an extreme flood or an extreme drought, that's likely to become more common over our coming decades and centuries, right? So any level of impact that we're currently experiencing is just going to get worse. I'm curious, when people decide to develop certain areas of land in the plans and the planning stage for that, where I'm assuming there's some interaction with local governments, um, are, are developers generally required to show how their development might impact water in other areas or potential flooding, rivers, stormwater, that kind of thing? My understanding is that that is likely to vary sort of locality by locality and state by state. If you are, there are some federal regulations. So if you are filling a wetland or rerouting a stream, you have to get a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers um, and show that that's going to have minimal environmental impacts. But most of the sort of permitting of development is done at the local scale. Um, and, and generally, you would be expected to show that your development is not going to make flooding worse for downstream areas. Whether that's actually how things end up working in practice is a different story. Um, you know, we can, we can draw beautiful plans for a stormwater pond or a bioretention cell. But if they're not built to the way those beautiful plans were designed, then they won't function as well. Or if they are built um, and well-designed, both well-built and well-designed, but they're not well-maintained, 10 years from now, they might not be doing their job. So if your stormwater pond has filled in with sediment and no longer has the capacity to detain stormwater that it used to, then you could be exacerbating flooding downstream, even though... At the time you built the development, it was fine. Um, and so I see that a lot in my research and sort of 
now persistent habit and peering in stormwater ponds and infiltration trenches and things like that is that there are a lot of them that either look like they were designed well but poorly built or they look like maybe when they were built they were fine but they're not functioning well because they're not being well maintained um and so those are those are the sort of pernicious problems that um can be more difficult to solve just in the permitting stage it's always difficult when we talk about maintenance because it's it's one thing to spend the money to build a thing, but oftentimes the more difficult problem is how to maintain the thing once it's been built. Right. And especially with some of the the newer types of stormwater controls, things like bioretention cells and permeable pavements, um, things like that, where they're 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 trickier. They're not just concrete, right? And so now you're talking about convincing maintenance crews, like retraining or sort of changing the mindset of, of highway departments and maintenance crews that you've got to, you know, not scrape the sand off the parking lot and into your rain garden because that's going to change the way your rain garden functions or, um, things like that. And so sometimes, I mean, it's a, it's a problem both ends. Either they don't get maintained right or cities are hesitant to adopt these newer and potentially more effective forms of stormwater management because they're not sure that they can get buy-in um, or they don't think that they will ever be able to get buy-in from the maintenance crews. Um, and so they go with the more sort of pipe-based systems because that's what their crews know how to to design and maintain. I'm assuming as well, there's a big problem with stormwater not being sexy. And so the only time we really tend to think about it is after it's failed us. <laughs> yes. So this is something I feel really passionately about. Um, so I was actually a AAAS um, Leshner Leadership Institute Public Engagement Fellow um, for 2016-2017. So sort of just ended my my year of fellowship. And I was my goal was to really get this message out there that stormwater plus climate change is a is a huge issue that we need to be paying more attention to. And in some ways, I look back on my year of activities and I feel like I failed. But it wasn't for lack of trying, you know? I mean, I, I had some really frustrating conversations over the course of the year with reporters and, um, you know, different organizations, I'm trying not to badmouth any organization here, that are really working on promoting public engagement with science because they seem to say, well, if people don't already care about that, why should we spend any airtime? or any of our resources on promoting this message. And it's like, well, how do you get people to care about it if nobody's willing to spend any airtime or any resources on helping them figure out why they should care? Um, and so I, you know, I'm pretty active on social media. That's part of what I can do. I take any chance I get to talk to a reporter or a podcast, um, and try to get this message out. But I actually sort of debated with my other Leshner fellows. Should I just tag my efforts? Stormwater is sexy because <laughs> it's, it's just. <laughs> It's not, um, but it's also so incredibly important. And there seems to be, there seems to be some sort of gap and, and how we, um, have to sell some of these issues to people. And if it's not sexy, then how do we sell it? 
Um, and, you know, I, it's really sad that it takes these extreme flooding events where you're seeing displacement of hundreds of thousands of people to suddenly have the media start using the word stormwater. And I will also say that I don't think, and I don't think I've said this yet, this interview, I don't think that urbanization is really the major piece of why we had so much flooding during Harvey. We just had an overwhelming amount of rainfall, again, bigger than what we would ever be expected to design stormwater management for. And even in a natural landscape, we would have gotten a heck of a lot of flooding from four feet of rainfall. And so... So now the media is paying attention to stormwater and to urbanization impacts on watersheds, but it's actually not the best, not the best time to be having this argument because it isn't the clearest case. It's more the like, the more the sort of run of the mill local impact floods. It was an intense rainstorm on Saturday afternoon in this watershed outside of Cleveland, and now we have all this flooding in a downstream community. That's the time we should be talking about stormwater management. Um, it, it shouldn't be the 50-inch disaster where there are very, very few places in the world that could have handled 50 inches of rainfall. I mean, that is that is the thing with something like what happened in Houston and what has happened in uh, the wake of Hurricane Irma. We're, we're actually talking in the midst of Hurricane Irma. I think Irma's just hit landfall in, in Florida. Those kinds of events are just like there's I don't think there's a way that we can really engineer ourselves to be indestructible to those types of huge, very extreme events. Um, but they do generate a lot of pictures and they do generate a lot of interest in the topic that oftentimes get oftentimes gets left to the wayside. It's it's difficult to think. I'm sure it's difficult to think, are we taking advantage of this horrible event? That's not really what we're talking about. But at the same time, if we don't talk about it now, then maybe we won't get a chance to talk about it. Right. And again, I think going back to what I said at the very beginning, these events become disastrous because we've put ourselves in harm's way. And and so that is absolutely the right time to be talking about urbanization and urban development patterns with regards to extreme events. Should we be building, you know, huge high rises on a beach when we are prone to flooding now at high tide, you know, in a known hurricane zone? Like, we should be having these conversations around extreme events um, about just generally where we put ourselves, particularly in a climate changing world. And so, well, I just said this isn't necessarily the perfect event to talk about stormwater management in Harvey and Irma and the wildfires in the West are absolutely the times that we need to be talking about climate change because these are climate change charged events and they are harbingers of what our future climate looks like. We are seeing right now things that we are going to see with increasing frequency over the coming decades. And so, gosh, I'm glad that most people are saying, yes, we should be talking about climate change in these contexts. And thank you so much. It's a really interesting topic. And uh, as people are trying to pay more attention to it, uh, I hope that there's more of the messaging that at least gets stuck in a bit more when people get to things like voting or municipalities have to decide how they're going to change some of their development rules. Absolutely. I agree. 
If you want to learn more about Anne Jefferson or her work or how urbanization and water have a tendency to get in each other's way, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, signsforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 